This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 121 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Cody Cornell. He's CEO of Swimlane, a SOAR platform provider. Cody began his career in the U.S. Coast Guard and has spent 15 years in IT and security, including roles with the U.S. Defense Information Systems Agency, the Department of Homeland Security, American Express, and IBM Global Business Services. We'll learn about his career path from sailor to CEO. He'll share his insider perspective on SOAR platforms and how organizations are using them. And we'll learn how he thinks organizations are best implementing threat intelligence to protect not just themselves, but the community as a whole. Stay with us. I grew up in rural Montana, a hundred miles away from any, you know, meaningful airport. Um, And, you know, to to get away from that and to to get out into the world, I joined the Coast Guard. Uh, Mm. So I spent about five years in the Coast Guard. Uh, My first duty station was uh, aboard, uh, actually, a polar class icebreaker. Uh, So I got the chance to go to Antarctica and the Arctic. Um, And then, you know, from after that, I I went off to uh, electronic school. So I did electronics, you know, radio repair uh, for, for a couple of years and then some logistics around that. Um, and that's really where I, I got started in IT. That's where I started going to community college classes at night and um, l- learning about Linux and Unix and, you know, starting to build some things on my own in my own spare time. And that, that's really where my kind of career got started. And, and so you transition out of the Coast Guard. Where did you go next? Uh, so my first job was actually working for uh, one of the, the defense contractors in the D.C. metro area. Hmm. Uh, so I worked for one of the intelligence community uh, organizations, you know, working initially just doing help desk work and then system administration work. Um, but when I was out of the Coast Guard, uh, that was a part time job at the time. Uh, I actually joined and I worked with uh, BAE Systems. So I, I worked, uh, you know, working on some DISA programs around vulnerability management, host based intrusion prevention and, and things along those lines. And eventually you moved on to the private sector. Yeah, so did some work in the government space, uh, you know, and then really transitioned over into like financial services and and commercial. So uh, spent a number of years helping you know organizations deploy you know enterprise technologies, be them endpoint or otherwise, uh, into their environments. Uh, I did that at American Express, uh, helped build a security operations center for a component of DHS when I was working at IBM, um, and then you know ended up building a consulting company after that. Uh, so in 2010, started my own consulting practice, again, helping organizations build security operations or the tooling that's that's needed for security ops. And, you know, that was really where we started, you know, deciding that we wanted to build a product uh, to, to support some of the, the problems that were associated with, you know, alert fatigue and disparate technologies not talking to each other and things like that. Now, as you're making your way through your career, and I'm thinking particularly in your early days as you're you're getting your feet under you. What were the what were the guiding forces that made you decide you know, this is an area I want to focus on? These are where my interests are. Yeah, I mean, if I go back to to high school, actually talking to my high school guidance counselor, you know, the the, the job that I wanted was it was to be a burglar. I always thought it was intriguing to be able to kind of <laughs> circumvent the things that were in place. You know, physical security hacking wasn't really a thing that you know we just called it trespassing. Like, and I, I didn't do it as a kid or anything like that. But it was it was always intriguing for me. And you know, as I got into electronics, which kind of led to IT, I started seeing you know what security was uh, in, inside of technology, and it had some of the same attributes of that. You know, kind of, uh, you know, cat and mouse type of idea and how do you see what's going on and how do you circumvent what's going on? And, you know, I really at one point thought I wanted to be a pen tester. I think a lot of security people want to go down that path. 
Uh, it turns out I wasn't the world's best pen tester. And, you know, I mm-hmm. thought that the problem of, of building systems on the blue team side of the house to actually keep people out all the time, you know, having to be right more often than not was really a, a much harder uh, problem to solve and one I was just a little bit more attracted to. Now, in terms of your own management style, as you're putting together teams and in a leadership position, how do you approach that? I think, you know, growing an organization, you're looking for people that do different things at different phases. You know, really early on, uh, you have to people that are they're comfortable doing things they've never done before. They have to be kind of utility players. Uh, no, no task can be below them. And I think that's always the case. But, you know, those type of people are, are a little bit different than as you scale an organization. You're looking for people with deep specialties, uh, deep domain expertise in a particular function. You know, if it's R&D or if it's uh, product or sales or whatever it might be, um, that, that changes over time. So, I mean, you're always looking for some of the, the, the characteristics that we, we look for here at Swimline specifically about, you know, folks that are going to punch above their weight class that, you know, are always trying to get better at what they do and always trying to make the, the organization better. Uh, but on the flip side, you, you, the skill sets you're looking for does change over time. The, the specialization, uh, continues to increase over time as the organization grows. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. And I, I wonder, you know, for you personally, it sounds like when I look at your work experience, you know, from the Coast Guard through organizations like the Department of Defense and American Express and IBM, I mean, these are all large organizations. When you decided to go out on your own, was there a bit of a culture shock there that you weren't within these, these, big, uh, these big structures of companies? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a different culture between a startup and you know working for a contractor that's supporting you know the Defense Department. Those those are two fundamentally different uh, organizations. Um, I always uh, felt that I, I thrived a little bit and enjoyed chaos. Uh, even inside of those organizations that have a ton of structure, um, I think at times it didn't make me the best employee in the world, in all honesty. <laughs> uh, I think I was pretty hard on my managers and sometimes on my peers. Um, and, you know, I'm getting a little karma for that from time to time as Swimlane scales and, and understanding some of the things that I did that, that I see other people do and, and ask of me that, you know, I probably should have done. And I, I, hopefully at some point I can go back and apologize to those folks for doing <laughs> those things. Um, but, you know, the you know, teams inside of those organizations, a lot of times function as startups. I mean, that they're trying to solve, you know, a problem that the business has an issue they're trying to fix. They're trying to deploy a piece of technology. They're doing that in a tight knit group. Um, so there's, there's some attributes of working in the organizations that, that, that a startup like, um, that, that being said, there's, there's things that are obviously different. You can't, you can't punt on anything when there's 10 people in the company. If something needs to get done, there's nobody else to do it. You just have to do it yourself. And, you know, I think a lot of times that that's new and novel for folks. And that's something that, uh, you know, based on a character flaw of not being able to delegate well, uh, I was able to embrace, but not, not everybody, everybody loves that. They, they're, they're used to having somebody that they can sometimes send that over to, uh, if it's graphic design or if it's, you know, you know, it's customer support or whatever it is, there's folks are typically used to being able to give that to somebody else and, and not having that optionality is, is sometimes eye opening for folks. And, you know, some people just totally embrace it and they love it. Uh, some people realize that that's, that's not what they want to do. So. Yeah. Now, with the creation of Swimlane, which is where you're CEO now, can, can you walk us through what was the spark of an idea you had there and, and how did you go about forming the company? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we started a consulting company. You know, one of the things that we were doing was competing for work that, you know, was against other big organizations. If it was the big four or a big, you know, systems integrator in the Fed space, uh, we were trying to win, you know, SOC transformation, um, you know, building out a SOC, whatever it might be. And, you know, in doing that, we were spending a lot of time talking to folks about, you know, what they were struggling with. We would look back historically at what would we had struggled with. And, you know, in, in that moment, we thought if we had a product that would differentiate us, 
uh, and allow us to, to go capture those customers where, you know, our, our competitors were just selling kind of based on their uh, past experience. And, you know, they had some great experience. So we were trying to combat that. But in building that product initially, we we put it in front of some different folks and got some feedback and, and realized that, they, you know, there, there was a lot of appetite for what we wanted to do around an automation and uh, platform and a data centralization um, uh, capability. And, you know, we, we learned, we realized quickly the economics of a consulting company and the economics of a, of a product company are very different. And mm. that was, that was really, really intriguing for us. Now you all have a SOAR platform. Um, can you, can you describe for us, for folks who may not be familiar, what does that mean? Uh, SOAR stands for security orchestration, automation and response. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a fairly new segment. Um, I think people are still trying to figure out what it means to them at times. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, w- what we're really trying to accomplish is, you know, there is a lot of work that security teams have to do uh, that is high speed. Uh, it's it's very, very repetitive at times, uh, but it absolutely has to be done. And it has to be done, you know, in real time uh, to meet, you know, expectations, to keep dwell time down, to, you know, to capture best practices. And what Swimline is really built to do is, you know, enable organizations to do security operations uh, at scale uh, when they have limited human capacity to do all the things that they want to do. Now, when you're out and about and you're talking to folks and uh, learning about the things that they do and sharing the information about what you do, do you find that there are some common misunderstandings that folks have when they're trying to to get their hands around standing up these sorts of functionalities? What what people do from time to time is they... they look at the the problem that they that really drives them to look at SOAR in the first place, right? So this might be or your really common use cases around phishing or similar arm triage, and they look at those and go, you know, if I could just not have to triage phishing emails every day that are submitted, you know, f- from our our users. Or if I could just get all these endpoint alarms triaged on a daily basis, I'd be in a much better spot. And a lot of times, you know, that's that's great. And that, that's absolutely the case. If I can take that off the plate of a team and, you know, reduce a team of 10s workload by 15, 20, 30 percent, you know, that one use case will will justify the investment that you make in a, in a technology like SOAR. I think what people don't, uh, one of the things that they fail to kind of look at or think about is, you know, automation is applicable to almost every use case inside of SOAR from, you know, DevOps to cloud infrastructure to vulnerability management and patching. There's, there's all these things that you're going to want to be able to automate away and not really bringing that full breadth of of use cases into your you know product uh, selection and product evaluation process is something that I think people uh, fail to do from time to time, and that that causes them to to run in situations where they they've got something in place to solve for one use case, but they haven't set themselves up for success over the next several years to automate hundreds of use cases. Hmm. Now, in terms of automation, I mean that, that's an area that that fascinates me because I, I often wonder. How much, when when organizations are dialing in automation, which I think in most people's minds we consider to be a technical thing, but how much of that is an art versus a science? Where's the the intersection there? It's interesting, right? Because I think a lot of times when people think about automation, they're kind of thinking of that that clinical science component of it as I need to take data from system A, put it in system B, and if you can do that for me, that's great. Uh, If you can extract data from a source in real time for me, that's great. Um, but the other side of it is, you know, I think that's really interesting about SOAR is this is one of the big first innovations we've done around security and people. 
Um, if you think about all the other technology, the $100 billion we invest every year in, in threat detection and mitigation, that is watching the endpoint, watching the wire, watching the perimeter, watching mobile devices. It's, it's not how do we actually take the people that are doing those jobs and make them more efficient. So I think that, that you know, when you're talking about people, it's never binary. It's never black and white. Uh, organizations, they have people. They have their own adversaries. They have their own politics. They have their own regulatory compliance requirements. They, these things are less science. You know, I think we'd like to see our regulatory compliance be a little more sciencey and a little less vague. But on the flip <laughs> side, um, you know, there, there's, there's an art component to that, right? I mean, and, you know, people, I think, underestimate the impact of, you know, historical events and, and politics on how it drives operations and being able to support that and being able to support that in an automated way. And that, that sounds like a big leap, but that, I think that's what people need to think about when they're, when they're bringing these technologies in. Now, when someone is setting up an environment like this, they, they've engaged with you or, or another provider of, of uh, a SOAR platform, how do they ensure that when they're getting things set up that they're kind of future-proofing them against their own future growth, that the stuff they're building today, you know, they're not going to have to reinvent the wheel when the company's twice as big or 10 times as big or, or even more? Yeah, and I think that's a that's a great question that folks should be asking themselves because you, yes, the company is going to grow, and that might take quarters or years. Um, but the technology that you use, the infrastructure that you leverage to grow the business, the adversaries that are going to be focused on you, they're not going to change on a quarterly basis. They're going to change on a daily and weekly basis. So that ability to be able to iterate through the changes that are going to happen inside of your environment and be able to to, to respond to that is, is something that's super important. And I think for us, that, that was one of the, you know, the, the hard lessons we learned really, really early in, in building Swimlane is, you know, we took the product to a couple different organizations that were within the same government agency that should have had the same technology and the same escalation and the same regulatory compliance. And they both asked for something different. And it wasn't the same different. They asked for something totally different. Hmm. And, and that was interesting for us because that drove one those underlying engineering tenants of, of building swim lane, which is we, we don't want to dictate to our customers how they do operations because it's, it's unique to their business. And in order to be future-proof, you have to have a system in place that allows you to change to the needs of the business, the changes of the people, the changes to your threat landscape in real time, as opposed to being dependent on a vendor saying, well, this is how you visualize this data, and this is the integration that you have, and this is the limitations on how you iterate. Even though your, your life is changing in real time, the product that you're using might not be able to. And I think that's something that we that we focused on early on uh, and is, is is commonly, you know, told to us by our, our customers and our prospects is something that's, it's, that they're really excited about. Well, help me understand when, when someone has, uh, you know, gone all in and, and they've gone through the transition and they're they're up and running and uh, reaping the benefits of being on a SOAR platform, what kinds of benefits are they enjoying? What kinds of things are they coming back to you and saying, you know, these are the things that, that we maybe we didn't even expect, but these are, you know, where we're saving time, where we're, we're running more efficiently. What kind of stuff do you hear back from them? Yeah, I mean, I got two that really stand out just because they're kind of recent and one, you know, was kind of near and dear to me, which was, you know, we have, I'm talking to a managed service provider, you know, right now that is, you know, implemented Swimlane and, you know, they're looking at, you know, how many customers can they support? Uh, with the number of people that they have, right? So if you look, if you think about managed services, one of their biggest expenses is around the number of people it takes to manage a certain number of logos on their side, a certain number of customers. 
Uh, and if they can draw the number of people they need down to manage a broader number of customers, it, it's really good for their business. That's the business they're in. And when we have customers like a managed service provider that tells us the reduction in level of effort to triage our, you know, uh, our bulk customer alarms goes down by 60%. That, I mean, that that's hugely impactful for them. That that's a, that impacts their bottom line and impacts their margins and impacts, you know, how they can retain and attract talent because those people are not doing uh, repetitive and mundane tasks. I mean, th- that is a, that moves the needle in a very significant way for an organization like an MSSP. Um, you know, another example of that is, you know, a, a more of a direct customer where, you know, they they have they have to have a, a tier one team that has to keep eyes on glass. And, you know, they have a lot of turnover in that. As soon as those people are, are get, they get trained up, um, they move on and they, they go on to more fulfilling jobs. But that function always has to be fulfilled. And what they're able to do with automation is, is implement that into their environment and that all the roles, which in this case was, you know, north of 10 full time people were able to move into more fulfilling functions if it was forensics or counter threat intel or, you know, incident response or whatever it was that was a little bit more than just eyes on glass and triaging, you know, basic alerts that 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 was a huge win for that organization that, you know, a lot was able to take those people and put them into much more fulfilling uh, roles. I want to uh, touch on threat intelligence a bit with you and, and get your perspective on that and the part that you think uh, threat intelligence plays in an organization's defenses. For us, the thing that I really have always been impressed with from, with Threntel since day one is it, you know, security people historically don't like to collaborate. They are, they're kind of siloed, especially across organizations, right? There is this, you know, we're going to keep what we do secret. And threat intelligence, I think, is the, the first real big meaningful step and organizations looking at how collaboration is going to change the way that they do operations on a daily basis. And, you know, to see this, this come into, come into fruition, to see how people are sharing, how that benefits multiple organizations and, you know, how we get that rising tides raise all ships, uh, is a, you know, is a fundamental change, not just in, you know, technology, but just how security teams operate. And to me, that's, that's the, the, the thing about threat intel that's, that's most exciting is just the sheer paradigm shift that it, that it put into our environment, uh, you know, on top of obviously the the, the value and using threat intelligence from a day-to-day security ops perspective. The thing that I, I think is really applicable to threat intelligence that's interesting is if you, you look at some of the standards that are associated with uh, threat intel sharing, be it sticks or whatever it might be, there's there's these this concept of, you know, indicators of compromise. And then we really want to move into, you know, more you know, detailed uh, information, right? So if it's techniques or whatever it might be, but there, there's there's a section within those standards typically that's around course of action, which is, you know, if I see this behavior and however I identify it, if it's behavior, if it's an IOC, whatever it is, um, you know, there's there's some corrective action that, that generally we want to associate with that. And I think that has been one of the underutilized components of threat intelligence sharing is how do we actually couple, I saw something bad, this is what it looks like. If you see it, this is what you should do. And I think that component, obviously, from a sore vendor perspective, is really, really attractive. Um, and I think it's where we work with, you know, the the recorded futures of the world to, you know, work to help organizations not only identify bad behavior environment, which is obviously the first step in identifying, you know, that we need to take action. But how do we couple that with what do you do in this moment 
to make sure that, you know, just because I found it, I actually know how to mitigate it and I, I can do that at scale. Um, so I think that that component um, kind of, I'll, I'll be honest, kind of riding on the shoulders of the folks that that built this collaborative uh, thought process, be it ISACs or just general intelligence sharing uh, overall, is being able to couple that course of action, what I should do when I see this, uh, as being kind of that next natural progression. You know, looking forward, looking ahead, you based on uh, the experience that you've had, as you look towards the future, what sorts of, of things are, are you seeing in terms of the things that, that uh, security professionals are going to have to prepare for, the, the, the challenges, both technical and, and human challenges, what sorts of things are on your radar? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there, there's obviously a shift that's happening as it relates to the skill sets that are needed to be a security practitioner. Um, you know, historically, you know, the, the pipeline of people that got into security uh, were system administrators and network engineers and, and things along those lines because they understood how the infrastructure works. They understood how to configure and control them. Um, and they, you know, had a progression into those those security roles. And, you know, I think, you know, with infrastructure changing, with the adoption of cloud and virtualization and containerization and things like that, the skill sets that are being used to manage infrastructure now and into the future, um, you know, become much more, you know, DevOps centric. They become infrastructure as code. Um, and, and that skill set is, is a little bit different. So as I'm talking to folks that are, you know, are, are transitioning into security or thinking about getting into uh, security in one capacity or another, you know, those skill sets around DevOps, around software development, um, around understanding kind of how that works uh, is, is very different than the advice I would give, you know, 10 years ago on how to transition to security when focuses were on things like system vulnerability management and, you know, endpoint patching and, and things like that. Um, there's just a, there's a pretty big shift in, in the skill sets that I think people are looking for um, to, again, try to kind of future proof themselves from a personnel perspective on where the business is going. Yeah. And, and folks um, like yourself who've been in the business for a while have to stay at it and keep up to date. Yeah, I mean, always always improving is something that I think, you know, security people are actually really good at. I mean, typically they're curious by nature. They're tinkerers. They like to see how things work and how if they can break them. And, you know, if I can break them, how can I prevent that from being broken? And yeah, I think that self-fulfilling prophecy at times is, is really what makes a good security practitioner is that, you know, that uh, idea that I need to understand how the things I'm using today, every day works, right? So if I decide that I'm going to stop using Exchange and I decide to use the G Suite, all of a sudden the things I used to poke around on Exchange for to see if I could, you know, relay mail or whatever it might be, and I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit there, but <laughs> like whatever it might be, that you, you start reapplying those things to, to do infrastructure. And I think that's that's the, the thing that keeps people current is just that that underlying curiosity applied to the thing that is new and that I'm leveraging now. Our thanks to Cody Cornell from Swimlane for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Zane Picorni, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 